0: If you don't feel safe with your partner and you bring this up to your partner and your partner dismisses it or makes you feel stupid because of it and then repeats this and you don't feel safe again and you bring it up again, and this happens in a cycle and a pattern, that's domestic violence.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. I'm your host Jazzy, and as you can see from the title, this episode is going to be very different from the content I typically share on this podcast. Before I get into it, I do want to share a content warning. For the entire month of October, we'll be discussing the topic of domestic violence and intimate partner violence in particular. Some people may not be comfortable listening to this episode and others that will be released this month, or you may want to avoid listening around your kids, so just a heads up there. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it's particularly important for me to do this because I'm a domestic violence survivor, and sadly, there are a lot of us out there. On average, 20 people per minute are physically abused by their partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million men and women. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. This includes a range of behaviors such as slapping, shoving, and pushing. 1 in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year, and 90% of these children are eyewitnesses to this violence. Each year, 324,000 pregnant people in this country are battered by their intimate partners. Domestic violence is actually more common than any other health problem among women during pregnancy. 95% of men who physically abuse their intimate partners also psychologically abuse them. And on a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. That's just a few of the shocking statistics related to domestic violence. People may say, why are you sharing this? Well, for a few reasons, but most importantly, because staying silent is dangerous. This is literally a matter of life and death, and I don't think people realize it. Back in June, I decided that I was going to do a podcast episode on domestic violence during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And as I made notes about what questions and topics I wanted to address during that episode, I realized that there was no way I could fit it all into one episode. So I split it into two, and then that wasn't enough either. So, you guys, for the entire month of October, I'm releasing content related to domestic violence. There's at least one episode every week, but we've got a couple extras thrown in there as well. And of course, I'm definitely not an expert. I just happened to experience something traumatic, realize that it happens to so many people, and want to amplify the voices that helped me when I was going through it. So I'll be joined by a domestic violence journalist, podcasters, a social psychologist, attorneys, and a trauma recovery coach. I've spent months working on this for you, and I truly hope you get so much value from it. We'll be sharing tips for how to spot an abuser before you even commit to them, how to know whether or not you're in an abusive relationship, how to support a loved one who has an abusive partner, how to create a plan to safely exit the relationship. We'll talk about post-separation abuse and how to navigate family court with your abuser. In order to end this, we have to talk about it. That starts with building confidence in survivors so that they feel supported to share their story and speak out about it. Then more people will see the issue with it. And for those who haven't experienced this, we need people like you to have the courage to speak out against it. Recently, an NBA player was arrested and charged for domestic violence against his girlfriend, and I've seen all kinds of posts. There's definitely some victim blaming or comments about how she must have done something to provoke him, but the majority of people are calling for him to be banned from the NBA, and some are even saying he should be banned from entering an arena ever again. Why is this sort of outrage and public discussion held only when it's a celebrity? Why are we also not calling out our friends, coworkers, sons, brothers, etc., when we see things like this. We need to hold people accountable. Even if this series helps just one person leave their abuser and stay away, it'll be worth it. I hope you'll share this series with your friends and family because you never know who in your circle might be experiencing domestic abuse. I've included several resources in the show notes, so be sure to check that out and keep an eye out for new episodes each week. I'm excited to kick off the series today with Amanda Kippert. Amanda is an award-winning journalist, domestic violence advocate, and the editor-in-chief of the national nonprofit DomesticShelters.org, where 2 million people a year seek help and information regarding domestic violence. She has reported on domestic violence issues for the last decade, including a year-long investigative piece for the HuffPost called A Forgotten Crisis about domestic violence in the military, which was nominated for a New York Deadline Club Award in 2020. She co-hosts the podcast Toxic with Jenna Brandle where the two women break down issues of toxic masculinity and tell the true and brave stories of survivors of abuse. That's actually how I found her, and I loved her direct, no-nonsense attitude when it comes to calling this stuff out. I know you're going to learn a lot in this episode. It's actually a really great introduction to what domestic violence is and how you can support your loved ones who may be going through this. So let's just go ahead and jump into it. Hey, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. I know it's a heavy topic, um, but I'm glad I found you and that you were able to do this.
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, it is a heavy topic. I I feel like I talk about it all the time to the point where I annoy all my friends and family around me, Uh, but I feel like it's a really important topic to talk about. I think that's one of the main ways that um, we end domestic violence is by having those conversations consistently.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm probably in the same boat where I've talked about it way too much and now I need to talk to somebody else that actually understands, you know, what all of this Mm -hmm. stuff is. So, yeah. Do you want to give a quick introduction, tell people about yourself?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I am the editor-in-chief of the national nonprofit DomesticShelters.org, uh, so we help people find resources and um, hook them up with advocates and hotlines in their area. We have something like 2,000 different articles on domestic violence topics, basically anything you want to find out on domestic violence, you could probably find on our website. And I'm also the co-host of uh, a podcast called Toxic uh, with my friend Jenna Brandel. And we talk about all things toxic, masculinity related, misogyny, um, abuse survivors, tactics of abuse, things like that. We try to break it down and educate people on warning signs, red flags, that kind of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's how I found you was searching for your podcast. So um, how did you, you know, get into this field in particular? Like what motivated you to start your podcast and, you know, start working in domestic violence? Mm -hmm. Well,
0: I've always been a journalist and I started out in um, like small time newspapers. I always say back when people used to read newspapers because that's how old I am. And um, from there, (laughs) from there, I just, you know, everything evolved and um, I started just doing different kinds of writing and became a freelance journalist um, and wrote for online sources like HuffPo and things like that. And when I was approached to um, to be the content director of DomesticShelters.org from a former boss of mine, uh, it was really intriguing to me because I've always loved doing nonprofit work. I've always loved doing things that I feel like have a purpose and help others. And this has definitely been a cause that's near and dear to my heart. And so for over the last decade now, it's exclusively what I've covered as a journalist. And I've really become immersed in kind of the domestic violence movement, I've learned so much. Um, you think, you know, when you're kind of on the outside of domestic violence, the ins and outs of it, but through reporting and talking to hundreds of survivors, I have just learned that it is so much more complex than I could have ever imagined. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I'm so, so grateful for the last 10 years that I've gotten to do this work and tell the stories that I've been able to tell. And then I started the podcast because I wanted a space where I could be a little bit, less censored, you know, as a journalist, <laughs> of course, we need to yeah. try to stay as impartial as possible and, you know, report the facts, of course, and toxic for me is a way to sort of rant and say like, but here's my thoughts on this. This is why mm-hmm. this fucking sucks. This is why this is awful. This is, you know, this is the injustice of this um, and, and sort of have that space that was safe to, to really be honest
1: about it and, and address the problem a lot mm-hmm. more bluntly. in in, uh, journalism yeah no I appreciate that and again thanks for dedicating the last 10 years to talking about this and yeah your podcast was one of the very few that I came across that was on the topic of domestic violence and it was super helpful and I loved the just authenticity the honesty the bluntness (laughs) you guys are great so I I appreciate it (laughs) well thank you yeah well Let's go ahead and dive in. So, can you give an overview of the different forms of domestic violence? I know there's so many different types, whether that's physical, mm-hmm. verbal, emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are um, a lot of different types. I
0: think when people think of domestic violence, they immediately think of physical abuse, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the most recognizable type of domestic violence. It's the um, it's the black eye, it's the bruises, it's the broken arms, right? The concussions, the traumatic brain injuries. Um, But it can also go so far as um, strangulation, suffocation, and then of course gun violence, Um, eventually homicide. Um, Domestic violence usually almost always escalates. So if it starts out with pushing and shoving or holding someone against the wall, it can very quickly escalate to Hitting, punching, shoving, strangulation, and things like that. Um, typically, it, there's not just one type of domestic violence. So, um, an abuser will choose multiple tactics to have power and control over a victim. So, that could include verbal abuse, which would be, you know, name calling, um, threats, um, tearing down someone's self esteem. Um, that overlaps a lot with mental, emotional, and psychological abuse because those are kind of all under the same umbrella. Of mm-hmm. non-physical abuse tactics that really um, brainwash a victim, uh, gaslight a victim to make them very confused and think like, "Is this me? Am I doing this? Am I making this person mad? Is it my fault? You know, yeah. I'm so sorry." And then the abuse is like, "You know, it's okay. It's alright. Just try harder. You know, just don't don't piss me off so much next time." Mm-hmm. And then the cycle starts again. Um, so yeah. sometimes. We think physical abuse might be the worst, and it it could be from a a safety perspective, but mental, verbal, emotional abuse can be just as bad and have just as um, long-lasting effects. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, financial abuse, which is when an abuser controls almost every aspect of the finances and the money. You might see this as an abuser giving their partner an allowance or racking up credit card debt in their abuser's name um defaulting on loans just to wreck an abuser's credit, all these things so that the um or to wreck the survivor's credit, uh to control the survivor and keep the survivor sort of indebted or dependent on the abuser. Mm-hmm. Uh it can also look like the abuser not allowing the survivor to have a job or on the flip side forcing them to work and then handing over their money as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are two more types mainly that we, we talk about, which is spiritual abuse, which is using someone's religion to control them, and reproductive abuse, which is controlling when and how many children a couple has by either forcing pregnancy or forcing abortion. And so all of wow. these things are just other tactics to keep a survivor dependent on the abuser or feel like she's dependent on the abuser.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... So many different kinds, and I didn't even think about the spiritual abuse. I have never heard that, so I'm Mm. glad that we're kind of Mm. shedding light on that. Yeah, spiritual abuse
0: can be used by both the the abuser and also by religious organizations um, Mm. because sometimes the church can be complicit in telling a survivor, you know, we don't agree with divorce. Um, Mm -hmm. The Bible would want you to stay with your partner. Um, God wants you to forgive. You know, these kinds of phrases that they don't they don't translate anymore right Mm -hmm. they don't translate in domestic violence and so sometimes it can come from the abuser who says you know your religion doesn't allow this god when you're gonna go to hell if you leave me Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can come from the church
1: yeah i know for me i definitely dealt with that psychological abuse there's a lot of verbal and emotional abuse as well as physical abuse and i definitely thought like what is going on? Like, am I just making all of this up in my head? (laughs) Like, is this actually Mm -hmm. happening? Or cause he's telling me, Oh no, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm totally innocent. This isn't abuse. Even though I would say that specifically. I'm like, I know that this is domestic violence and he's actually an attorney. You know that this is also against the law. So like, what, what are you doing? And he was just so adamant about it, not being abuse. And it was awful.
0: God, that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have to listen to your gut. I mean, your gut was telling you that that was wrong. And mm-hmm. I think that's an abuser. Abusers are so cunning. Like they know exactly what they're doing. When they say things like that, like that's, it's not really abuse. It didn't happen. Like you're imagining mm-hmm. it. You always blow things out of proportion. And you're so sensitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These kinds of phrases are just meant to make survivors doubt their own reality and think, well, maybe, maybe I'm the crazy one, you know, Yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and then they stay.
1: Yeah. It's awful. Something else I've heard too, and I'm in, bunch of support groups and and all kinds of things like that. Um, I've heard, you know, he hasn't hit me yet. He's shoved me. He's pushed me, but he hasn't hit me yet, so it doesn't count. But it doesn't count from what you've you've learned over the years. That still mm-hmm. is domestic violence. You know, it's absolutely anytime you don't feel safe, and you
0: address this with your partner, because listen, like there's kind of like this muddy line between like a, an unhealthy, toxic relationship and an abuser, an abuser who is, you're in a relationship with, um, cause I don't want to call it an abusive relationship, but that denotes that there's like some fault on the side of the victim. But, um, if you don't feel safe with your partner and you bring this up to your partner and your partner dismisses it, or makes you feel stupid because of it, and then repeats this, and you don't feel safe again, and you bring it up again. And this happens in a cycle and a pattern. That's domestic violence, no matter what it is. If it's name-calling, if it's shoving, if it's hitting, if it's intimidating, um, that's domestic violence because it's a pattern of power and control,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: your partner's not acknowledging it or addressing it or fixing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important for survivors to hear that because it makes you feel a lot less crazy when someone says, no, it is, that is what it is. So yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some common myths or misconceptions people have about domestic violence that you've encountered? Um, I think, well, one of them we just
0: talked about, which is that it's, you know, it's the victim's fault in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. I hear that so often from survivors. Um, like For the longest time, I thought it was something I was doing. Um, Or I went to therapy to try to figure out why I was making my partner so mad. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that 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 plays a big role in trapping a survivor with an abusive partner is is that shame and blame that a lot of survivors take on thinking that they play some role in the abuse that's happening, but they don't, they don't share any of that responsibility. It's not their responsibility to fix it. It's not their responsibility to stop it. It's not their responsibility to do anything, but, um, to keep themselves safe and to get out. Not, they don't need to even understand it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that plays into the other huge myth that we hear all the time, which is why did she stay? Right. If it was so bad, why did she stay? If it's so bad, why did she go back? You know. Yeah. You hear it from law enforcement um, sometimes that, well, I've been to this house ten times. You know, I'm tired of telling her to go. Mm-hmm. She's not going to go, but they don't understand the, the complexity of leaving an abuser and, and all the ways in which that abusive partner has a hold over that victim. I always like to compare it to like a hostage situation. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have a bunch of hostages um, in that are being held up in a bank, let's say you don't say, well, why aren't they leaving? If it's so dangerous inside that bank, why aren't they just running out the front door? You know, we yeah. never, we never blame victims like that in other types of crimes, but in this type of crime, we, we often do that as a society. We look at the victim and we say, why don't you save yourself? Mm-hmm. Why don't you save yourself sooner? You know? Yeah. So I,
1: I really, I hate that so much. <laughs> I know. Same here. <laughs> Law enforcement, They'll say, oh, well, if this happened to you, why didn't you tell us about it sooner, too? Because, you know, if you wait any amount of time to report it, then maybe you're lying, mm-hmm. which is very frustrating.
0: <laughs> when, yeah. I mean, statistics will show if it, I mean, not that we need statistics to show this, but victims don't lie. Um, victims have been caught lying, if you can say caught, like in such a st- small, tiny percentage of the cases Mm -hmm. that it shouldn't even count. I mean, this is not the attention that someone wants um, by lying about it. You know, Mm -hmm. if they're coming forward to get help, they need help. And there's so many reasons why survivors don't report the moment it happens. One of them being is they often can't because the abuser makes sure that they can't.
1: Mm hmm. So I definitely want to help people kind of identify and understand when they or somebody that they know is in an abusive situation. So what are some warning signs? I know you mentioned that you have lots of articles on the site about red flags and that sort of thing. So what is something that people should be looking for? Yeah. Um,
0: well, I will just say this right off the bat. Um, very rarely, if ever, do abusers present themselves as abusers on day one or week one or even month one of a relationship. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but it's quite the opposite. Usually, and this is this is a tough one, but like usually, the first red flag that I will say is that the relationship right off the bat seems too good to be true. Uh, if you find yourself saying things like "this guy is like a prince charming," and I'm going to use "guy" here, even though both women, men, all genders can. Be abusers, mm-hmm. but most commonly, by and large, it's going to be men abusing female partners. So if if you find yourself describing it like a Prince Charming kind of situation, or he swept me off my feet, or it just seems too good to be true, or he's, he's everything I've ever wanted, and it's, you know, your third date, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean... I feel like this is this has got to be a little bit of a red flag for us, um, because that is what abusive partners will do to make sure that the victim slash survivor slash their partner is totally smitten. It, they're just all in. Um, it's called love bombing uh, mm-hmm. when there's like over the top displays of affection. Romance, gifts, um, thoughtfulness. I've shown up at your work with lunch for you. Uh, When you come home tonight, I've made dinner. There's roses. Here's a really expensive gift. I want to take you away this weekend. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And then once you're in and everything seems so perfect, that's when the control starts. And the control is going to start slow most of the time. Of course, not not all relationships are the same. Uh, it can definitely look different, but oftentimes the control will start with something as small as like, where are you going tonight with who? Like, I don't think you should go out with that person anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're good for you. I think it should just be you and I, like, I think I'm the only one that really knows you best. I, I think I'm the only yeah. one that can care for you the best. And that is the control, but it's also the isolation. So they're going to get you to depend on them and only them. And then it's going to be you guys against the world. And from there on in, everything that that partner says is going to be what you're going to do because you're going to think, yeah, like they're right. Like this Mm -hmm. friend of mine, they don't care about me as much as my partner does. Right. And so all of a sudden that partner is your entire world. That partner is telling you what you can and can't do. You're asking that partner what you can and can't do. And this can happen to anybody. It's not just people who are, you know, vulnerable to control. Uh, It can happen to the most independent person before this kind of relationship. Yeah. It can happen to somebody who just usually abusers will target um, victims who are kind, caring, thoughtful, who want that love story and who uh, want to give their partner a second chance when something happens. So, you know, everything's going along swimmingly and all of a sudden their temper just explodes out of nowhere. Something little goes wrong and they're irate. They're punching holes in the wall. They're screaming profanities, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And then you're like, wow, this is a, a different side than I've ever seen of this person. Yeah. And then that abusive partner is apologetic. And oh my mm-hmm. God, I'm so sorry. It'll never happen again. Here's another gift. Here's another trip. Here's another dinner. Here's another thing. I, I'm going to change. You can help me change. You're the only person that can help me change. I need your help to change. And here we go into this cycle of codependence, you know, and control mm-hmm. and power. Um, and it's always going to s- just slowly escalate. It's going to get worse and worse. It's kind of like, there's like that analogy of like, if you drop a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out, Mm -hmm. right? But if you put a frog in cold water and slowly boil it, it'll die, which is a gross analogy. I don't know where (laughs) that came from, but I don't want to think about dead frogs. But it's kind of like that thing, right? If you just slowly start ramping up the control, you're going to be in so deep before you realize like, oh my God, my entire life is being controlled by this person. I didn't even see it happening.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Oh my gosh. I remember, and I didn't think about this until I was out of the situation. And actually one of my best friends brought it up. She's like, do you remember a year ago when he tried to make you do this workout? So basically his friend is like a personal trainer or something and came up up with this workout plan for him and he wanted us to do it together And it wasn't just a suggestion, like, hey, I got this workout plan, like, maybe we should work out, you know, a couple days a week doing this plan. No, it was like, you're going to do this exact workout five days a week, every day with Mm -hmm. me. Like, you can't do it on your own, because I'm like, just send me the PDF. Like, I'll just do it at my gym. No, I had to go to his gym and do it, which was like 25 minutes away, with him five days a week, at the time that he suggested, which was like 9pm. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> absolutely not. I was like, yeah, it's not happening. And he got so upset. He like threatened to break up with me over it. He was like, you're not in this wow. partnership with me. Like, you're not thinking about what's best for both of us. I'm like, are you, are you hearing yourself right now? So that was like the first, like, I guess, taste of control that I experienced with him. And then I kind of forgot about it because I wasn't living with him at the time. And I just kind of blew mm-hmm. it off or whatever. And then, as you said, yeah, it escalates, and until you get it gets to that point where they explode, and then they're yelling at you or whatever's happening, and then you think, okay, maybe they're just having a bad day, bad week, something with work, they're stressed out. He was also in yeah. grad school, like maybe it's school stress. Like you come up with all these excuses for them,
0: yeah, because you love them. Mm -hmm. you're in it that's that's what they're hoping for right so you don't want to believe that it's really hard not just to admit that uh, like you're with somebody who could be abusive but that you then have to um acknowledge that you're a victim and that word is is tough and um that's why we use survivor a lot in our language because victim sounds like you're helpless but you're not it's just Mm -hmm. you've been bamboozled by someone, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people think, well, it can't happen to me because I'm, I'm too smart. You know, I'll see it coming. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. It can happen to anybody. Be- and it's not the fault of the the survivor. It's, it's like you said, it's the abuser that is, is doing these things and making you question like, wait, should I be like saying yes to what he's asking? Because like, am yeah. I being a bitch? Like, mm-hmm. should I be working out at 9 PM with it? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's why it's, it's so... It's so fucking tricky like that. And yeah. one of the things that we got some really good advice on toxic from, um, a guy named Spencer Corson, who has written, um, this great book. And he said, uh, one of, on one of your first dates with someone, although I think it could apply at any time, if you're questioning your relationship, disagree with your partner or disagree mm. with your date and see how they react. And that should tell you pretty much everything you're going to need to know. Right. So, so like really when true. you disagreed with that, yeah. I don't want to go work out at 9 PM at your dumb gym. like. <laughs> He should have been like, okay, sounds good. I just thought I'd suggest it, right? That's a healthy relationship. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was awful. I was like, I cannot believe this is happening over a workout plan, but whatever. How long were you with him? So we were together almost three years, but we actually had known each other for almost 10. So I met him, Mm -hmm. I was 21. I was in college. Um, So my senior year of college, his first year of law school. And we just, I mean, we kind of talked for a little bit and then became friends. Like I said, it's my senior year, so I was getting ready to graduate Mm -hmm. and leave. Um, So, yeah, we just remained friends and then eventually decided to date. So I thought that I knew him really well and definitely would not have imagined that this would happen. And I'm also extremely independent, which he did hate, (laughs) you know. Um, There was something else I saw last night actually on Twitter unfortunately this woman, um, so I'm in North Carolina, someone in Greenville, she was just killed by her boyfriend. She was also pregnant. She was 38 weeks pregnant and she was killed last week. And people were sharing all these different statistics and they were saying, you know, you're actually more likely to be a victim of domestic violence. If you're a woman, you are black woman. Um, you make more than that person you're pregnant. And so I'm like reading this and I'm in shock because I'm just like checking the box. Okay. This is me. Like (laughs) geez.
0: Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And that age range too, 18 to 24 is when you're at your greatest risk of, um, I guess being ensnared by an abuser. Uh, women of color have a much higher rate of domestic violence and a much higher rate of not reporting said domestic violence. So, um, statistics are are just tough for that reason because we don't actually know how many people are affected by it because so many times it goes unreported.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, um, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I, I have read that as well, that that women who are more financially um, independent are at a higher risk because, I mean, that's probably alluring for abusers. Mm-hmm. Educated women, I think I've, I believe it's educated women have just as high of a risk factor for domestic violence, but I'm I'm not sure because the stereotype, mm-hmm. right, is that it's it's going to be less educated
1: women, right, um, are at higher risk. Hmm. Yeah, it's all the stereotypes that you might think of. You know, when you hear the word victim, it's like it can be anybody. So those it really those can. stereotypes really just need to be thrown out the window because. Yeah. I mean, I definitely never expected it to be me. I'm sure as I was telling friends and family, they were completely in shock and did not expect it to be me either. Um, And Mm -hmm. fortunately for me, I know a lot of women don't have proof to back it up. So when they say these things, people often don't believe them, which is terrible, but I actually had proof of everything. And even without that, everyone believed me that I told, but hearing some of it, I've shared... Couple pieces and videos with friends, and they've said, like it is hard for me to watch you in this state not being submissive, but like being put down and being way smaller than you actually are, you know, on a normal day to day situation, yeah, I bet that's hard to listen to
0: and for you to hear back as well, you know, when you have to um, remember that again or or tell people what happened. I mean, that's a big part of survivors who tell their story I think are so brave because it's reliving that drama and going back to that place again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably another reason why people don't report it as well um, because now you have all this scrutiny. Your family and friends, they probably will believe you, but then you have to talk to law enforcement and potentially attorneys. You might have to face them in court, and that is just nerve-wracking.
0: Yeah. hmm
1: there's so many parts of
0: reporting and disclosing abuse that are re-traumatizing to survivors that yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize. It's not like you just call the police to tell the police and the police go and arrest the abuser. Like it's not like that.
1: Mm-hmm. There's, no. there's so
0: many. You have to I I feel like domestic violence is one of the few crimes yeah. where you have to prove that you were a victim. Uh, the the burden of proof falls on mm-hmm. um, the victim of domestic violence to prove that instead of just right off the bat, you know, we say all the time, like, if your house gets broken into, the police don't go to your house and be like, did it really, did it really get broken into? Like, is there really someone in here that stole all your stuff? They're like, Oh my God. Okay. Let me take your statement. Let me do this and that, you know, Mm -hmm. with domestic violence right off the bat, it's like, well, did it really happen like this?
1: Yeah. I like the way you said it re-traumatizes you because that's exactly what it was. I know there were situations where people are like, okay, what happened? Like, I need to know more details specifically what happened. And I'm like, I am not ready to share because yeah, you are reliving that whole experience and it's traumatizing. So it was really hard, especially in the beginning to talk about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Why can't we just believe women? Why do we need to know all the details? Why do we need to have all the stories? Like, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: I was abused by my partner, full stop. That's enough. That's all I need to know. If you want to tell me more, tell me more. If it's healing, Mm -hmm. if it's, you know, justifying to, to say the details, go for it, but we shouldn't demand it out of survivors.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So along those lines, what are some ways that friends and family can support victims and survivors of domestic violence when they share their experiences? Mm -hmm.
0: I I mean, the biggest one is to believe them Mm -hmm. and validate them by saying that. I believe you. I believe that that happened to you. And I hear what you're saying. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, you know, instead of saying like, really? I don't see that in that person, you know, I don't, I cannot picture that person being abusive. Are you, Mm -hmm. are you sure? You know, like any of those sort of self-doubt questions that survivor has already had them. Like, you don't need to say that to them. Like they've already doubted their own reality enough that, you know, they can't believe it either. So you don't really Mm -hmm. need to say that as well. Like they already have been through it. So I think the biggest one is just, I believe you and I hear you. And then what Mm -hmm. can I do to help you? Because sometimes, you know, survivors will disclose this while they are still with their abusive partner, and they might confide in a family member or a friend or a coworker. And that person, that support person might have their heart in the right place and say, like, okay, well, you need to leave. Obviously, this is a horrible situation for you. It's dangerous. You need to go. And it might be hard to hear that, that survivor says, I, I can't. I'm not ready. I just need to tell you about it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the hardest places to be put in as a support person, especially when you, you know, very much love and care about this person who's being abused, is to say, okay. I, I believe that you will know when it's safest to go because it might not be safest in that moment to mm-hmm. walk out the door. Like you said, the abuser could be threatening to hurt or kill anybody else that helps that survivor to escape. You know, they might have children or pets in the house that they say, if you walk out that door, I'm going to hurt or kill these uh, individuals or these animals. You know, there could be all sorts of threats. Mm-hmm. So. I think as a support person to just say, I'm here for you and let me know what you need when you need it and maybe direct them to some resources uh, where they can learn more about abuse. I mean, domesticshelters.org is a great one where you can say, maybe you need to learn a little bit more about what does verbal abuse look like, you know, because it Mm -hmm. is just abuse. It is just as much of an abuse tactic as physical abuse. Um, And it is going to escalate. So Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you want to reach out to a hotline and talk to a domestic violence advocate do you want to do that from my house where it's safe to do it? I'll go in another room. You can give them a call, like something like that without trying to force them to do something they're not ready to do because that's what the abuser is doing at home anyway, forcing Mm -hmm. them to do things that they don't want to do. So the support person needs to be careful to not emulate that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I know those websites are super helpful and now they even have chat um, and text version. So if you are still at home and you don't feel comfortable speaking on the phone, you can do that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the national domestic violence hotline has an online chat feature as well as a texting feature mm-hmm. because a lot of times their hotline is unfortunately um, backed up. There's a 15 minute wait or more I think mm-hmm. is their standard message but I don't know how long it is in reality because they're understaffed. There's a lot of people who need help and not enough helpers. So if you... Mm-hmm want to reach out to um, them through chat or text, that might be a quicker way to do it. But yeah, otherwise, try your local domestic violence hotline. They might be more readily available with Mm -hmm. people to help.
1: Yeah. Do you have any, um, I guess, knowledge or experience with shelters and safe houses and how those can support survivors of domestic violence? Yeah. Uh, Shelters are
0: a fantastic resource for survivors to rely on when they need to get out right away and they don't have anywhere else to go. The thing about shelters, again, like the hotlines are, they're typically at capacity and uh, sometimes it can be difficult to find a space, uh, especially if you don't have like an immediate danger. So if you're in an abusive relationship um, and you need some time to get your thoughts together, and figure out what your next steps are, it might be better to see if you can stay with a friend or family member, because a shelter is typically going to take people who are in the highest level of danger. Um, they do a lethality assessment is it's called, where they ask you, you know, when was the most recent incident, um... Does your abusive partner have a weapon? Have they threatened to kill you? Have they threatened to kill themselves? Things like that. And they will take the people that are in the most danger. And so sometimes if you're not in immediate danger, you might not be able to get a spot there, but you will be able to get support. So I don't want that to discourage anybody. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to say like, let's let safety plan to get you somewhere safe right now. Let's talk about other housing options and things like that. Um, if you go to a shelter, you can stay there anywhere from you know, one night to sometimes up to a couple of weeks. And then that way you can sort of have that safe place to, like I said, figure out next steps. Like, where else can I go from here? Am I ready to break up with this person? Am I ready to file for divorce? Do I need to get a custody order in place? Do I need to get a protection order in place? Things like that. And in the meantime, shelters will have other services that are available both to the people who are staying there and to other people in the community, like support groups Um Childcare care options, um, sometimes kid programs to help children deal with the trauma of domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, food assistance, medical assistance, uh, counseling services, things like that. It ranges um, widely from area to area, but um, I encourage survivors to not give up if they call a shelter and the shelter is full to keep asking, keep calling mm-hmm. places like don't give up at your first shelter because they are trying... The hardest that they can but there's just a lot of need out there
1: yeah which is really sad it to is think about yeah, yeah i wish
0: there was a lot more shelters and a lot more help and a lot more efficient ways to get survivors out of domestic violence than mm-hmm. like pack up all your belongings and go stay at a place that's really unfamiliar and kind of scary because that's really i mean shelter is a very supportive place but it's also yeah. I imagine pretty scary. I can't speak from experience. I've never stayed at a shelter, but I've talked to plenty of survivors who have, and, you know, it's been a mixture of it It saved my life, and it was also terrifying, you know? Mm -hmm. I took my kids into this place with a bunch of other traumatized women, and you would think that it would kind of all be like, well, we've all shared this trauma bond together, but it's actually like a bunch of women who are all going through their own
1: things, and they're all terrified Mm -hmm. for different reasons, and so um, it can be a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hard they might have pets too, which they may or may not be able to bring to the shelters. Most likely they won't be able to bring them. And that's a whole nother layer because I know for me, mm-hmm. I definitely did not want to leave my dog. So wherever I was going, he was coming with me.
0: Yeah. Luckily more shelters now are offering, um, pet options, um, either to bring your pet on site or or they are working with local shelters, rescue groups to temporarily foster an animal, which again, can be really scary. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to give your animal up to a stranger and hope that they take good care of them. But if it means saving your life or your children's lives, uh, it's definitely worth it in the end. But ask about that if survivors are listening at your local shelter, because so many of them do have options like that. And not just for cats and dogs, but for large animals like livestock and horses and snakes and chickens. Yeah. (laughs) We did a whole episode on toxic. If you're curious, you can listen to it with, um, one of the individuals from this group called red Rover, Mm -hmm. which is working to make domestic violence shelters animal friendly. So they are a great organization.
1: Oh, wow. That's really cool. And then on top of that, dealing with the financial cost of it. So I just could not believe how much money I've spent, like, easily. And then, of course, I have a mm-hmm. child, so there's custody, there's attorneys involved. i got an attorney for mm-hmm. my domestic violence protective order. So, yeah, I was looking at thousands of thousands of dollars that I unexpectedly had to spend. So there's a lot that goes into it, and I can totally understand why someone might stay longer in a situation.
0: Oh, my gosh, so much. I mean, the the child custody factor alone is... I think that's one of the biggest barriers to leaving an abusive partner. I mean mm-hmm. it's first off, it's getting a divorce is so expensive. Um, getting any type of attorney to help you with child custody issues is so expensive. And an abuser will often make sure that the survivor doesn't have any money to even begin this journey with. So where do they start, you know? Mm-hmm. You just have to hope and pray that maybe somebody will take on your case pro bono or that some miracle will happen. And then on top of that, so many abusers will use the threat of I'm going to make sure I get full custody and you're never going to see your children again. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Like I'm a mom mm-hmm. of two. If I was with somebody who said that, I would, I, I would, that would be enough for me to like question, like, is this fight worth it? Or should I mm-hmm. stay knowing that I can at least be here to protect them? Because that's what a lot of survivors
1: have to come to terms with, you know? Yeah. I definitely thought about that for a while. And then I was assaulted in front of my daughter and I said, no, that's not worth it at yeah. all. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I get that a hundred percent. Can you right. talk about domestic violence during pregnancy and with children? I know you just mentioned kids and them witnessing domestic violence and the impact that has on them. So yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Pregnancy puts, um, survivors of
0: domestic abuse at a much higher risk, not just of violence, but of homicide. Um, Typically, uh, survivors who are pregnant and abused have been abused before. So it's not like um, the abuse will just start with pregnancy, although sometimes it can. Sometimes that can be the impetus to an abuser beginning to have the power and control over the survivor. Um, But we just know from statistics that there is a much higher risk of danger to pregnant survivors. So if there is any type of abuse before you get pregnant um, it should be taken so seriously, uh, to the point where like, I don't want to tell anybody they need to do this, but God, I would really, really get out of that relationship, Mm -hmm. um, before you get into that pregnancy because it's, it's only going to get worse and it's going to put both the mom and the baby at much higher risk. Um, there's complications like preterm birth, um, miscarriage, Things like that. That can not only happen from the stress of domestic violence, but also from the physical implications of domestic violence. Um, but uh, abusers will often prevent the pregnant woman from um, seeing an obstetrician. So then they don't have the prenatal care that they need. And so then that can lead to a whole host of complications, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of times the survivor won't even go to a doctor because they don't want to have to disclose domestic violence. They have physical indications on their body that they've been abused and they don't want to have to uh, tell somebody about that. They don't want to get found out. So they hide that and then they don't get the prenatal care. And then they're also living in silence with this abuse going on. So Mm -hmm. it gets gets so muddy and complicated um, when a survivor gets pregnant. And then you have the children afterward. I mean, The children who witness domestic violence, the complications from that are lifelong. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just it's a cycle that continues. So, again, it's it's hard because I want to warn people about this, but I also don't want them to feel shame because they stayed when they had a child with an abusive partner. Because Mm -hmm. as soon as you can get out, that's that you should do that. You know, but if yeah, if it's a year in, if it's two years in, at least you got out.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's good. For me to hear, especially because, you know, I was assaulted while I was pregnant. I did go into preterm labor, had my baby at 35 weeks. Like, you just told my story. So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. Whenever you but get you to got leave out. is, yeah. yeah, is the main, most important thing.
0: Right. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. You know, like, survivors have enough on their plate. Like, don't, don't put shame on it as well. Like, you know, you can take that off the plate because the shame and blame that survivors give themselves... You know that it's not it's not needed. Like the fact of the matter was that your choice in the matter was affected by this abusive partner. It wasn't like you could just leave at any time, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think the fault should fall with the survivors. We should always just blame the abusers for <laughs> for everything, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. But because we don't know what's going on, you know, you knew when it was safest to leave, and it wasn't safest to leave when you were pregnant. It was safest to
1: leave right after. Yeah, yep, exactly. So speaking of the abusers, do they know what they're doing when they're committing these acts or is something wrong with them? (laughs) You know, like Uh, we make all kinds of excuses. Like like I literally, I would tell my friends after I left, like, I don't know if he seriously thinks that this is okay or if he's just messing with me. Like (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just, I don't understand. Right. I mean, the short answer is yes, abusers know what they're doing.
0: Like they know what they're doing, you know, I can't say with 100% certainty for every single abuser in the world, but by and large, abusers know what they're doing. And, and I believe that they they know what they're doing from the very beginning, like before they even choose their partner, they know what they're going to do. They know how they're going to control them. They know how they're going to love bomb them. They know how they're going to entrap them. They know how they're how it's going to go. Um, the reasons that they do this, um, they, abusers themselves will blame all sorts of things, right? They'll blame childhood, domestic violence. Well, I was abused, I witnessed abuse, I came from abusive parents. Um, they'll blame mental illness, they'll blame alcoholism, drug abuse, they'll blame PTSD, they'll blame um, being in uh, like the military and going to war. Um, but the fact of the matter is, none of these things cause people, force people to be abusive partners because there are alcoholics who don't abuse their wives. Um, there are Mm -hmm. plenty of soldiers who don't come home from war and abuse their wives. There's plenty of people with mental illness who don't abuse their wives. So, um, these things can perpetuate abuse, like abusive behaviors that are already there. So if this person already knows that they're going to be an abuser and has chosen that route for their life, then certainly adding, um, you know, misuse of drugs and alcohol is going to make that worse. Adding PTSD Mm -hmm. is going to make that worse. The things that they grew up with in childhood is going to make that worse. It's going to put them at a higher risk. We know that people who grew up with childhood domestic violence are at a greater risk of either becoming an abuser or becoming a victim of an abusive partner. Mm -hmm. Um, So while we can say that alcoholism is a disease, we can say that mental illness is obviously a disease. um, It is their responsibility to get help for that disease it is not um we cannot say that oh they couldn't help being an abuser that's definitely a choice i believe Mm -hmm. and maybe not everybody's gonna agree with that but that's wholeheartedly what i believe that from the moment they begin that cycle of power control that's a choice that they Mm -hmm. make and then they i think they gaslight themselves into thinking i'm not doing anything wrong you know this is just this is me being a man, that. and this is what I'm entitled to. Oh my gosh! So, because they're being a man, uh, yeah. that's a lot of what <laughs> that's a lot of what our podcast focuses on is this culture of toxic masculinity, where our culture has supported this idea that men are entitled to have power and control because we have supported and applauded and congratulated um, and awarded that in so many areas of life not just mm-hmm. in relationships, but in corporate America, you know, in pop culture and things like that, the man in charge is the, is the the best man, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the leader, the boss, the CEO, those guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why would that not trickle down into yeah. how they treat their partners?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you said that, Oh my gosh, I just got flashbacks because <laughs> had multiple conversations about how, you know, men, real men do not abuse their partners, you can't be a leader when you're also using force and control and abusive language and behaviors to control people. So yeah, I'm not seeing him as a leader and then that just made him even angrier and you know, then he wants to, you know, try even harsher tactics to control me Mm -hmm. and yeah, that whole being a man being a leader thing is, yeah, they're definitely hung up on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's not a leader. That's a bully. That's someone I think Mm -hmm. that has very, very low self-esteem and feels like they need to bully other people in order to make sure that they're not the target of that bullying. I mean, it's just playground bullying, but with adults, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so they're like, if I'm, if I'm the first one out of the gate to control other people and intimidate other people, then I won't be the victim of that, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was listening to your podcast earlier, um, and you had an episode about weaponizing competence and Mm -hmm. I never even thought about that as a form of abuse or a tactic, you know, that they might use. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, weaponized incompetence
0: can definitely be and often is a tactic of abusive partners, um, but it can also just be something that a partner does and it's not associated with domestic violence. And so the difference between those two things is, like I said earlier, if you can talk to your partner about this um, this weaponized incompetence and, and have this open, safe, healthy discussion about their role um, in your relationship and how much of the domestic labor they're taking on, and they're open to that and they're open to change, well, then you have a healthy relationship where you can work out this. But if you have abuse present, then weaponized incompetence is often a part of that. And what that is 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 basically this idea that one partner is, for lack of a better term, like too dumb to figure out how to do some of the very simple domestic labor chores that exist in a relationship. So, you know, I can't possibly, um, take care of my own children. Cause I don't know how to do that. Only, you know, how to do mm-hmm. that, you know? And then there's like this factor of gaslighting that works into it. Like, you're so good at taking care of the baby. Like I'll never be as good as you. Like you're the only one who knows what they eat. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the wife who goes away for a girl's weekend and the husband texts or calls them 400 times to say like, where, where do you keep the milk? Like mm-hmm. where, what do I dress them in? What time do they need to be at school? Something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, what it does is just create this burden on one partner to do 90% of the domestic labor because their partner, their other partner simply can't, they just can't. They're just, I'm too dumb. I'm a big dumb mm-hmm. dummy. Like our friend, I guess, Laurie Danger said, I love that phrase. I'm a big dumb dummy. I just don't <laughs> know how to do anything, you know? Um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's become a joke. Um, I think in a lot of, our society and pop culture yeah. and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, like the incompetent dad and the incompetent husband, and they don't know how to do anything. But when it trickles down, what it translates to is it's it's making women go absolutely crazy because they have way too much on their plate and they're not being supported. And yeah. um, they have a, a partner who's not there for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was glad I came across that, that episode because that was something else that I was experiencing too. And I never even thought, oh yeah, this was also a form of abuse. I, Like I said, had a baby, it was postpartum. He immediately goes back to work and I'm left to take care of this newborn all by myself, all day long, all night long, because he had to get his sleep because he had to work. I was on maternity leave. Mm. So I have all the time in the world to take care of this baby, like that's my purpose. That's what I'm home for, you know? Um, So yeah, I could relate to that so much. I remember there were so many days and weeks where I would say to him, like, I'm so exhausted. Like, can you help at night? He wouldn't do it. So yeah, I'm glad glad you mentioned that.
0: (laughs) Sorry. That is so rough. I didn't think that you're in a camp with so many other women who have felt that Mm -hmm. uh, specifically around childcare. You know Um, I hope that the ties are changing. I hope that more men are, you know, stepping up and, and playing a much larger, if not, God forbid, equal role in um, <laughs> child care. But there, there is still that idea of like a traditional gender role. Like women have the babies and then mm-hmm. they take care of the babies. And we go to work and we earn the money. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not equal. Going to work and earning the money is not equal to taking care of a child all day long. Even if it's the yeah. same number of hours, it's not equal. And mm-hmm. um, no, we need to stop all. saying that that is equal because it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's so hard yeah as as a mom of two it's so fucking hard
1: (laughs) i'm sure i don't know how you do it with two (laughs) (sighs) yeah
0: i barely have my sanity but
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know they're cute so they make up for it i know that is that is true that definitely helps (laughs) well um this has been really helpful is there anything else related to domestic violence that we haven't covered i mean i know there's so much that we could talk about but anything else that you definitely want to make sure you mention on this episode
0: I think we covered a lot. I really appreciate having this discussion. Um, I feel like I talk fast because there's just so much to share about it. (laughs) And I want to make sure people have as much information as possible. Um, It still saddens me sometimes to hear, uh, because I interview survivors all the time, and to hear them say, like, I never knew that.
1: I never mm-hmm. knew that.
0: I, I didn't. I didn't even realize I was being abused, and that's the part that I desperately want to see change in our society. Is like, not only do we know what abuse is, um, but we stop questioning victims' um, accounts of that abuse because mm-hmm. we know that it happens and we know that they're not lying. So, um, I just I hope that if there's anybody out there who is listening that's a survivor of abuse, know that um, we believe you and we support you, and don't stop telling your truth just because somebody says that they don't because your truth is valid. And the more we talk about it, the more it's going to be exposed and the less power abusers will have mm-hmm. if we take that back and say, you know, you can't do this anymore. Not yeah. going the fuck off. Like I'm not standing <laughs> for it.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was exactly the place that I was in. You know, I wasn't sure if this actually counted as abuse. I had no clue. So the more we talk about it, I think the more aware everyone will be, because even the statistics, I forget what they are, like one in four or something like that has Mm experienced with domestic violence. And that is a huge, huge number. So like, why are we not talking about it? And that's only what, you know, is reported. I'm sure it's even more prevalent than that.
0: Yeah, that one in four number is typically like um, physical abuse, stalking, sexual Mm. violence, things like that. Doesn't even account for the non-physical types of abuse. Um, wow. People who have been verbally, psychologically, emotionally controlled, or, um, or it doesn't account for the women who have been harassed by men in their lives, um, which I think is a whole separate kind of abuse. It's not intimate partner violence, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I think one in four is doesn't even isn't even the tip of the iceberg in terms of how many women have felt um, controlled
1: by uh, yeah. someone in their life. Wow. Well, thanks again. This was super helpful. I appreciate you coming on and sharing the information that you have learned over the years. Can you go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you if they want to learn more about you and the podcast as well? Absolutely. Um, well, you can find um,
0: all the things I've written on Domestic Balance at domesticshelters.org. And you can find out more about our podcast at toxicthepodcast.com. And then we're that should link to all the social media channels and things like that. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll include everything in the show notes
1: too. Cool. Thanks for tuning in to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, I'd love if you subscribed and left us a review. Another way to support the podcast is to take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at First Hustle Then Brunch so I can repost it. Thank you so much for supporting the show and I'll see you in the next episode.